Please open your Bibles to Acts, the book of Acts. We're going to be beginning chapter 2 today. So we've got a lot here. We don't have a lot of time, right? Well, we have as much time as the Lord's going to take, but we know that he's coming soon. And so as we look here in the book of Acts, chapter 2, as we begin this, the Lord's brought us this far, we're going to finally make our way to this day of Pentecost. Now, please remember with me, this is not... This day of Pentecost isn't as though this is the first Pentecost. I think sometimes we read this in scripture or maybe even younger, newer Christians, they come to this passage and they think something about this day of Pentecost is so unique in that it's, well, this is Pentecost. I mean, this is the first Pentecost, right? No, actually Pentecost was one of the great feasts. It's 50 days after Passover and it would be practiced every year. And the difference in this particular feast was that they would go and they would bring the first first fruits of the wheat harvest, right? Of the wheat harvest. And they would bring it forth and they would dedicate it unto the Lord. They would sacrifice it, give it unto the Lord that way. The first fruits, right? The very best they have, the first of what they have. And so as we read here, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were with, with all with one accord in one place. Now, we read that, and again, it's a simple verse. In the day of Pentecost, when it had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And, and we might be remiss just to, just to keep on going because there's, you know, well, okay, it's Pentecost. They'd been there, but, but we can't forget how long had they been waiting? Ten days. Think about that for a moment. How do we all do waiting, right? Because I I thought about it. If I was one of these disciples, one of the 120 that are in the upper room with them, day one, I'm good. I'm checked in. Yeah, all right, Lord. You told me to go to Jerusalem. You told me to go to the upper room, Lord. I'm obedient. Look at that, huh? Obedience. I love it. I'm good. The end of the first day comes and I kind of go, well, Lord, what's the deal? You said not many days. I get it. It was plural, but come on. There's a lot to be done here. You've given us the Great Commission. Let's get after it. Day two starts to come. You go through it. And you know what you're thinking, right? You're thinking like, like any of them. would. I know what you're doing here. How many days? Three days. Right? Suffered, died, and he was resurrected. That's it. I got it. It's three days later. Okay, man. I know what we're doing. Everybody's in unity. We're in fellowship. Things are beautiful. It's great. Day three comes... And it comes to an end and they're looking down at their, you know, their clocks or whatever they're looking at. Their sundials, no, their clocks. And they're going, what's going on? Three days, Lord. Four days, five days, six days, a week. Do they begin to doubt? How many of us do we begin to doubt when we we expect the Lord to answer us? Lord God, you've given us a promise. You told us it would come. Jesus, as a matter of fact, you said you had to leave so that this promise would come, the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Nine days, we don't see a single disciple walk out of that room. They waited. They believed and trusted that God was going to send such a great gift, such a moving of the Holy Spirit that, that they have never experienced before in their lives. It was with great anticipation Now, here's my question for everyone here this morning. Do we expect that as well? Do we, in our heart of hearts, expect that great moving of the Holy Spirit? Now, maybe not the rushing of wind as we're going to read, and and we're certainly not in Jerusalem in the upper room, and we understand that. But are we expectant that the Holy Spirit's going to move upon us with great boldness? That he's going to go before us, he's going to 
literally ordain activities, events in order in which we're to simply walk through in faith. See, I, I fear that as time passes on that sometimes our light can grow dim. You know, I, I remember Pastor Chuck would say, every year, this is the year Jesus is coming. And every year, I believe that man with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength believed that that was the year. And I have to tell you, I am of the same accord. Every year, I believe and trust this is the year. Lord, you're coming back. You promised. It's called the doctrine of imminency, right? We're to expect that imminent return. Why? Because we're ready, we're sharp, we're looking up. Our light doesn't grow dim. We don't, we don't begin to kind of fall back, become complacent, comfortable, right? And I fear that much of the church today, the body of Christ, has become complacent. We've gotten comfortable. We see the things that are happening in the world, and as long as they're not affecting our direct dwelling, our family, sometimes we sit there and go, well, okay. I, I, I certainly don't want that, but, but we're okay. And I'd suggest no, no more. You know, what we're going to read here in chapter 2 is remarkable. Peter's going to give a sermon from verse 14 through verse 40 that's going to literally lead to 3,000 people coming unto salvation in a single day. And, and I'd argue even better yet, in minutes. In minutes. Because the moving of the Holy Spirit. Because people began to realize and acknowledged that they could do nothing good of themselves and that they need the promise of the Father to do that work. To do that work in them. Are we expecting that same way today? Have we come to the place where we got to the end of ourselves? This isn't sal salvinic. This isn't salvation. This is sanctification. This is the working of God. Have we gotten to the place? And, I, and I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to browbeat anybody here. I'm just saying we need to be stirred. We need to be stirred by the moving of the Holy Spirit. We need to be expectant. They were gathered together. They waited and they weren't going to leave there until they received that promise of the Holy Spirit because they knew that everything else after that, the foundation of the early church, what Jesus Christ said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive, was very important. Now, as I mentioned, in, you know, the Pentecost... It was called the Day of the First Fruits, Numbers chapter 28, verse 36, if you want to go back and look at its origins, if you want to study this. And it's interesting, again, according to Jewish tradition, it taught that Pentecost marked the day when the law, when the law was given to Israel. The Old Testament commandments, right? The law was given. And isn't it interesting, if you think about it where we are today and where the Lord's, this is the foundation, the beginning of the church. We're in the New Testament, right? You're all with me. We're under the new covenant. And yet on this day, when we look back in our scripture, when the Holy Spirit came on the day of, of Pentecost here on the new covenant, the church received what? It received something new and special as well. And that's the promise and baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, the first time in the Old Testament was the law. The second time was grace and fullness of love. 
and the working of the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Did you see that with me? I'd like to read a quote from you. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15 through 22, it, it goes through and talks about this, but Spurgeon actually had a, a great note on this, and I'd like to read it. And it gives the original instruction for the celebration of Pentecost, right? It said that there were two loaves of leavened bread that were to be weighed before the Lord by the priests as part of the celebration. That's what they would do on Pentecost. If you go back to Leviticus there, 23, 15 through 22, you'll see that. There were two loaves. They were to raise both. The priests would raise them. He would wave them, and they would lift them high. Well, Spurgeon notes, and I, I think this is a beautiful connection. He says, were there not two loaves, not only shall Israel be saved, but the multitude of the Gentiles shall be turned unto the Lord of Jesus Christ. For there were two peoples of God that will now become one. I love that. You think of, you think of the symbol you know, of those two loaves, the, the Israelites, the, the Gentiles, the Jews and the Gentiles, before the Lord dedicated, sacrificed, a holy people set apart. That's you and I today. We're part of the family of God. We're part of this. I love that. And as you look in your scriptures, underline with me, it says, had fully come. Again, this is pointing out 10 days. That's all it's communicating because they, you know, after Jesus ascended, we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, they had waited 10 full days for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure at this point, again, they were kind of going, what is going on? Now, the only other scriptural reference we have to ever waiting 10 days, because it's not like, remember, Peter had already gone back and gone into the Psalms, right? He got Psalm 69, Psalm 109. He began to do, remember Matthias? He kind of said, okay, I think it's right that through the leading of the Holy Spirit, through the leading of God, that what? That Matthias, the right, right we understand that. There's no, it's not like he could have opened the Bible and go, oh, I know what you're going to do here. Because there's only one place where we have a scriptural reference of 10 days like that, and that's in Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 42, verse 7. And what it talks about is, 10 days later where the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, but he was waiting 10 days. Can you imagine their patience and compassion? The unity that they had to all stay together like that? So just from this first verse that we get here, what do we learn? Three things I have for you if you're taking notes. One, and how beautiful is this for us today? God always keeps his promise. He promised to come back for his bride. He is coming we need to be ready and waiting. God always keeps his promise. Number two, any gift from God is always worth waiting for. Amen? Any gift from God is always worth waiting for. And number three, the gift comes as God wills. Many times God gives a calling on our lives or different things in our lives like that, and, and we're like, Lord, okay, I'm ready. Was there anything they could do to work up the coming of the Holy Spirit? Did they not invite him there? Of course they were. They were in constant prayer. We, would, we talked about that. They were in the word of God. They were in prayer. But the Holy Spirit is, is a person. He's, he's one of the, you know, component, he's, he's the third person of the Holy Trinity. And he wills. He's a he. You know, I, just this week I was, uh, we were looking at uh, uh, property and different things, you know, for the church as we, we, we grow. We're, we're praying about that. And, we, and, and I met this individual, and he came up, and he, and he said, you know, uh, it's great, you know, you, you serve the Lord, this, that. And he begins going through, and he says, you know, the mother God and my spirit had, I, I literally jumped. I, I, didn't, I, I couldn't, I didn't even hide it. I couldn't even go, oh, well, do you mean? I was just, 
you know, what do you mean? The mother God. You know, and he started, I said, you know, in our Bible, in the Hebrew and the Greek, God is so gently and perfectly given us pronouns. We have an intelligent God and we serve and we're intelligent beings and he's, he's given us the ability to exegete both Hebrew and Greek. It's beautiful and there's pronouns and it's a he. And I'm pretty sure he wants to be called that. I don't think, you know, how do you feel if I come up to you and say, well, you know, she's over here standing like that and, and presuming, you know, mentally you're intact that way and, you know, you expect to be called, uh, you know, a he and what have you, you you'd be taken off guard, wouldn't you? It wouldn't kind of catch you off guard a little bit, right? And yet we're living in a day where people don't want to acknowledge pronouns, do they? They want to be called he, she, now, you know, we talked about this, they, I said, boy, yeah, last time I read in my scripture when somebody wanted to be called they or when it was referring to plural, multiple people, who was that? Demon possession, right? Legion. Oh, my. Oh, my. So, you know, it's a he, and he comes in according to his will and not according to our expectation and timing. We don't lather him up. We don't draw them up that way. You know, it, it sort of makes me laugh, and we'll talk this about this a little bit later because our passage goes through the gift of tongues today, and, and there's some churches you walk into, and they, they want to lather it up, man. They're like, you got to go to a tongue-speaking class. I'm like, where is that in Scripture? I don't, I, and they go in there, and you're like, la, la, la. I'm like, are we singing? I mean, what, what are you doing here? You know, but they, oh, you got to get it, you got to get it wet, brother. You got to get it wet. You got to, got to, got to, what are you talking about? Where is that in scripture? And some of you are laughing, but really this happens. You can go into churches and it's this idea of working up the Holy Spirit. It becomes this emotionalism. That's not of the Lord. He does everything with decency and order. It's beautiful when the Holy Spirit moves because he gets the glory and it's nothing that man can do other than create a heart, a vessel where he can indwell and come upon. That's, that's our responsibility to be, to be the host that way with a right heart. So in this specific passage here, as we continue on here, it says the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit, came upon what? Not only individuals, but also upon groups. It came upon all 120 of them. It wasn't as though it was just the 12 apostles, apostles now with Matthias stepping in there. It came on all 120. Notice that with me. And we see that in Acts, obviously, chapter 2, verse 4. We're going to see it. Verse 4, chapter 31, or verse, chapter 4, verse 31, and chapter 10, verse 44. And I think that's something we can learn about the Holy Spirit is that, again, we, as we see these men here, they, they came fully, right, with one accord in one place and there's nothing they could do to earn or generate his coming. It was by the Spirit of God, by his leading. And what I appreciate here and I think has everything to do with the foundation of the early church here is it says that they were gathered with one accord in one place. They were sharing the same heart. When you look around, look around, left and right here. Look at your brothers and sisters in Christ. Really, look around. Y'all looking at each other. We look at each other all the time. No. You know, we all come from different backgrounds, different cultures, different histories, diversity. But we all have one important thing in common, and that's Jesus Christ. And no matter all our differences, that one thing that's in common, being a child of God, unifies us far more than anything can divide us. 
That's why I always say it's the Lord that brings unification. It's the enemy that brings the idea of division. That's never of the Lord that way. We don't see it in Scripture that way either. And I think that just, you know, being in the same heart, you know, loving the same God, the same trust in his promises, well, that's the perfect prescription, ingredients for the coming of the Holy Spirit to what? To come upon you, to, to indwell you, to live. And I think that should mark the body of Christ. If we're taking something away from this, this is what the early church was marked with. Unity, love, one accord, joy, prayer, obedience, walking in the Spirit, awaiting together. It's the foundation for every healthy church. And please notice, before they were filled here, again, they hadn't been filled. We're not into verse 2 where the rushing wind's going to come. We haven't seen that yet. We must recognize our need for God and his spirit. We must be intentional about gathering for prayer and obedience as these disciples were. They didn't just kind of end up there. They were very intentional about it. And they intentionally came day after day, even after the ninth day. What if, what if one of the disciples, what if Peter... Oh my, think of Peter who's being, he's going to be used here in, in verse 13 and 14 as we move on. If his wonderful sermon that the Lord's going to give him, what if Peter said, you know what? That's it. Nine days? Come on. How much more do you want me to wait, Lord? I've been here nine days. Nothing. What will you missed out on? A wonderful promise. How many, do I, how many of us are in such a rush and a hurry? We miss out on God's very best. He doesn't want that for any of us. We must be intentional. You see, it begins with a humble heart recognizing we can do nothing good of our own, nothing pleasing to God himself because we don't have the resources within us to do it. The resources only come through the Holy Spirit. That's where it comes from. That's why he gets all the glory, never us. We point people back to Jesus, don't we? We never point them to ourselves. And he gets the glory. Let's look at verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, they didn't know what to expect. Hindsight's twenty twenty. We look back, and, you know, yesterday we had a, the beautiful wedding ceremony, and we're there, and it was very calm winds the whole time. I mean, even the rehearsal, very calm winds. And we prayed, and one of the first things we pray, or I pray at the beginning of a wedding ceremony, is what? Lord you be present here. God, you did what? You began the first marriage when you brought Eve to Adam. You officiated the first marriage. You presided over it. God, we welcome you here. Preside over this marriage. Now, certainly, I'm not saying or attributing that this massive wind gust all of a sudden, but we had wind for like the next probably 15, 20 minutes during the wedding ceremony. You know, the wind was coming, and I'm thinking to myself, Lord, Thank you for making yourself known. And how sweet it was, just that his presence was there. Now, do, are we to expect that? Are we to, are we to go to Jerusalem? Because, I mean, if we want to be prescriptive about this, as we read it, we have to be careful. Because some of us can fall into the trap of going, well, am I baptized? Have I really received the promise of the Father? You know, maybe I haven't. I, I didn't feel the mighty rushing wind, you know? And, and really, this can happen. You know, I, I didn't speak in an unknown tongue. Therefore, maybe I, maybe I didn't get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, if you're going to be prescriptive and literal about this, then you better buy a ticket to Israel. You better hop on a plane. You better find the upper room. Good luck with that, right? And then, oh, by the way, when you're in the upper room, you better stay there for as long as it takes until you find a mighty rushing wind, right? You, you get my point. That's, that was the first time. This day of Pentecost is unique. It's unique. Now, we do see this, right? The Holy Spirit being poured out you know, to the disciples. We understand that's what's happening here. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 9 and 10, also tells us that the Spirit of God, right, as the breath and wind of God, moved on the dry bones of Israel. What came of that? That was prophetic. We look at that as prophecy. We're right at Ezekiel chapter 38 on God's timeline from a prophecy perspective. We know that, right? We're waiting. We know that there's the Gog, Magog, the whole tribes of five nations, mostly Muslim, four but one, Russia not being, coming against Israel. We're watching that timeline. It's happening before our very eyes. We're seeing Turkey make alliances with Russia, which used to be our ally, no longer an ally with the states, now an ally with Russia. We're watching this happen before our very eyes, the five nations that are prophesied that are going to come together. We read that in Ezekiel 38. But Ezekiel 37 happened first. And what was the prophecy that had to happen? And in Ezekiel 37, it talks about the dry bones. You remember that? The dry bones that would do what? Come alive. But if you read in that passage in context, before those dry bones came alive, there was a mighty rushing or a rushing wind. There was the Spirit of God that came above those dry bones that brought them back to life. Who's that talking about? Israel. And then in 1948, what happened? Israel became a nation. Do you see God's prophecy unfolding before our eyes? We're able to go back in history and see it because to us it's now in the past, but can you imagine? Those alive, you know, in 1948, 1949, they were sitting there going, this is happening. It's, did, it's in the Bible. Did you, are you, oh my. I mean, they were just elated because, Lord, you're coming soon, just as you said. Do you know that other than Israel, there's never been a nation in all of the world that has been brought back so beautifully and peacefully initially. I say peacefully. We know that peace will not last as we see today. But beautifully brought back into their land the way Israel has. It's supernatural. And we see this wind and and moving like that. And it's interesting. in In both the Hebrew, the Greek, and even in Latin, the same word for breath and wind is used. And not only Ezekiel chapter 37 but also here in Acts chapter 2. It's the same word. It's the same word according against, you know, translated in all the languages that way, you know, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. And so the sound of a rushing wind filling the whole house was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But, But we have to recognize it's unusual. We're not to, as a church, gather here and like open the windows or something and just say, okay, Lord, Bring your wind, baby. Bring it. Come on. Let's go. Where's the wind, right? No. It was an unusual. It was something special, something unique for that time. Because there are, there, there are churches that literally say that, you know, there are people that try to practice this way, taking Scripture out of context. We need to be Bereans. We need to go back. And that's important as we go through this because there's so much confusion with some of the gifts that we're going to read about, some of the things we're going to talk about in the, in the church today are the gifts for today. You know, there's some that prescribe to sensationism, the idea that the gifts have stopped working, that they're no longer valuable today. That's not what I believe. 
And I ask you to be Bereans here this morning. As we go through this, we're, we're going to look at that. And I already mentioned, if you're going to follow this literally that way, and you're going to expect that room, then you better get to Jerusalem. You better find that upper room, and you better wait for the wind to come that way, the rushing wind. Because if you're going to take it literal that way, then you better take it completely prescriptive and literal. Look at verse 3. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, as one sat upon, epe in the Greek, that's the upon there that we talked about. That's different than the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? When you're a born-again believer, the Spirit of God comes and indwells you. Our sister here accepted Christ yesterday when she did, or on Friday, excuse me, Friday night, when she did that, the Spirit of God came and indwelled her. It lives inside of her. We understand that. It lives inside of all of us. But that is different than the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we've already talked about that coming upon in the Greek for boldness, for his work. But what does it do? What, what, what's it about? This idea of a divided tongue of fire. You know, again, I would say that this is unusual in Scripture. I don't know about you, but when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, I did not see a spirit of fire above me and a tongue that came down it. And I have no doubt that I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, if you've had that experience of the fire and tongue, look, I, I'd be interested to hear about it. But I don't know of too many Christians that are walking around going, did you see that fire in that tongue? That was something. You know, no. I mean, it was, it was given, and I'm not making light of this. What I'm trying to do, though, is be very declarative that, that we understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for us today, but God never gave it in a prescriptive way where he said, you need to go to this upper room just like this to receive it. You, you're going to have fire above your head and this tongue that's going to come down. no. What this was was fulfillment of prophecy. In your Bibles, remember Matthew chapter 3, verse 11? John the Baptist prophesied that Jesus Christ, as I baptize with water, remember that? But he said there would be one that would come, Jesus Christ, that would baptize with what? Fire. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was prophecy. And it was for that time for those 120 disciples like that. And if you look at the illustration of fire, what is it used for in Scripture traditionally or typically? For purification, right? When you heat up a metal like gold or silver, what happens? The impurity raised to the top. It's called the dross. And you take the dross off the top and you're left with something more pure, refined. You see, a fire can burn away what's temporary. And then what remains is eternal. Now think about that from a spiritual perspective. When we're baptized with the Holy Spirit and the fire of God comes upon us that way, that what's temporal, that's burned away, man. But that's what eternal stays. That's the promise of the Father. I like that. Purity is the lasting result. And it says the Holy Spirit sat upon each of them. Now what's interesting, under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would rest on God's people as a nation. It would talk about how the Spirit came and it would rest on the nation of Israel. But now we see the Holy Spirit resting on individuals here. Right? And under the New Covenant, it, the New Covenant that Jesus Christ ushered in, it will rest on individuals, which means you and I can be baptized by the Holy Spirit, simply by asking Jesus Christ to baptize us and fill us and come upon us. Just as we see that they were waiting and asked, we too can do that, the same thing. It's beautiful. They sat upon them individually. Now, I will also note, and if you're taking notes, this strange phenomenon 
of this fire and that has never been repeated anywhere in Scripture. I think of Philip. I think of uh, the house of Cornelius. I think of all the other places where we see the Holy Spirit coming upon men after they were saved. We do not see this same idea, this, musing, this rushing mighty wind, this fire, the tongue. We don't see anything like that. They may speak in an unknown tongue, as, as, or other tongues, I should say, but we don't see this exact phenomenon happen the same way. Again, giving the point that praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that it's going to follow this prescriptive model. As we know much in Scripture, there's not a model that way. The Holy Spirit's a person, and he moves uniquely on the individual. And that's what we see here. And it's, it's important. And it's essential for the framework of the early Christian church. I like that. It was so important that in John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus said, I have to leave so that I can send him. It's awful important if Jesus Christ had to physically leave this earth to send the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, it's very important, and it's obviously something we need. It's not something that was suggested, like, hey, you know, maybe you get it, maybe you don't. So just think about that for a few moments. You know, we really need the Spirit of God to live out the Christian life. That's what Jesus was telling us. To serve God and accomplish his work. And he called every single person, every disciple. There's no election that way. As though some is, you know, someone are called to this. No, we were all called. And we received and we live, and now we follow. We mature. We grow as disciples. We no longer desire the milk, but we desire the meat. You see, that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit does inside of us. It gets rid of the dross. It brings the purity. It gives us the gifting and the resources that we need to carry out the work of God. Have you ever tried to frame a wall without a hammer or without any tools? It's not going to go so good. You're going to either get hurt or you're going to stand there, you know, just in a stupor, wondering, Lord, why isn't the wall being built? Because you didn't use the work that God has given you, the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit that way. It's very simple. Verse 4, and they were all filled, all 120. Notice with me, this isn't just the apostles. All 120 here were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What did they speak? Was it gibberish? Did they, you know, was it, what would happen here, right? I mean, we, we've seen that. I think that's why so much of the church is afraid of the moving and the gifts of the Spirit of God because we've seen those are, I'll call them brothers and sisters in Christ, that have sort of taken an extreme on this, right? And they've gone off and they've manifested these things you know, in their own, I'm being gentle and kind, in their own way, without decency and order, you know, barking like dogs, throwing themselves on the ground, you know, the whole idea of pushing the head and falling back, being, I mean, where do you find any of that in Scripture? I remember a pastor, a pastor, a friend of mine, he's a Calvary Chapel pastor, he came from a Pentecostal movement back 20, 30 years ago, and I remember him going up for, Pastor Chuck, you know, many, you know, came from the Foursquare movement before Calvary Chapel and seminary, what have you, and so he had little, you know, he understood that. He was standing up, and this guy came up, and he was, a, you know, 
pastor or so-called pastor, he came up and he put his hand on my friend's head and he said, I'm going to, and I forget the exact term, you know, you know, the whole falling back in the Holy Spirit, the whole thing, right? And he pushes his head and, and my friend was like, you know, he, he wasn't going to fake it. You know, he was like, hey, what's going on, man? And he stood there and he pushed and he's like, and he comes back and the guy's like, no, you're not getting it. Boom. And he's like, man, this guy's going to knock me out in a minute. So he's like, look, I'm just, he's like, you got to go with it, brother. And he's like, I'm going with it, baby. I'm like Jello. I'm going with it, you know. And he's sitting there because he really wants this. You got to remember, he wasn't a pastor that. He really wanted this. And the guy pushes his head and he's like, the person that I was talking about looks at him, right? Looks at him in the eyes and turns around and goes, you know, I'm, I'm trying. I, I, don't, I don't know. And what's the, what's the pastor do? He just moves on. He, he's, he's just moved on. And for so many years, he was like, whoa, what's going on? Am I, you know, he was wrecked. Did I, did I not receive the baptism? Of the Holy? Whoa, what was this thing that was going on? That's why there's so much confusion in the church today. And it's causing so much hardship and heartache. Because, oh, am I not baptized? Am I not this? Am I not that? And look, as we go through this, you know, this idea, the true gift, what was it? What was it they got? Look at verse 11 with me. What did they utter? That's what it's all about, right? The gift of tongues. What did they utter? Were they uttering to others the gospel of Jesus Christ? No. Was this a supernatural interpreter? No. The wonderful works of God. What's that sound like to you? Praise. We're going to talk more about that. We're going to talk more about that. So as you look at this here, it says they began to speak in other tongues. Again, the response of being filled with the Holy Spirit was they began to speak in these other tongues. Now, these were languages they were never taught. It wasn't like they went in and they had the Rosetta Stone, you know, and 10 days later, each one took off their headphones and came out and in the native tongue, you know, all of a sudden they were like, man, I got this. I got 20 different languages. You know, thank you, Rosetta. No, I mean, there was no Rosetta. This is 10 days and they're coming out and they're speaking in other tongues with such fluidity, such natural uh, intonation that those that were natural born speakers of that tongue couldn't tell the difference. They heard it that way, but they weren't, and I got to be careful, they weren't speaking to the multitudes. Who were they speaking to? God. That's what we just read, right? And we'll continue to read that. And Paul gave us a prescription of this as well as we get to Corinthians here. But they began to speak in other tongues, in other tongues like that. They spoke in other languages. The Spirit gave them utterance. And verse 11 tells us the utterance was the wonderful works of God. So there's no, there's no tongue speaking class. There's no, hey, work it up, baby, warm it up. No, there's none of that. It was the Holy Spirit that gave them utterance. Not something they had to manifest for themselves or through that way. The Holy Spirit did it. And he gave them utterance. But what are the wonderful works of God? It helps to go to the Greek here, you know. Megalias in the Greek is the word, if you're taking notes. Megalias or megalos. And it means the glorious perfection of God in his marvelous doings. The glorious perfection of God in his marvelous doings. What does that sound like to you? Praise. Beautiful, sweet praise. That's what they were doing when they were speaking in tongues. That's what we do if you speak in a tongue. That's what you're doing. You're glorifying God. It's not horizontal. It's vertical. 
It's always been vertical. Every scriptural application of it is vertical, not horizontal, and we'll read that. Paul tells us, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14. He talks about this with the church of Corinth because they had gathered and they, they heard of the gifts and they wanted the gifts and they began to try to manifest these things themselves, sort of lathering them up. And Paul comes in and he rebukes them and exhorts them, here's how you use the gifts. And he begins to, he begins to do this. In 1 Corinthians 14, he tells us in verse 27, 20, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three, right, or two or at the most three, each in turn. What is that talking about? decency, and in order. And let there always be, what? One to interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. You know, back, keep your finger here because we're going to be going through Corinthians here as we go back to Acts. In verse six, they all spoke in different tongues, yet there was a unity among all believers. And ever since the early church fathers, commentators have seen the blessing of, of Pentecost as a de deliberate and dramatic, what? Reversal. We've seen others speak in many tongues, but it was done in wickedness and evil, right? Because they were, it was more or less a curse, not a blessing, because of the wickedness of evil of the people to try to build something, a tower, of Tower of Babel, where they were building this tower up to begin to do what? to glorify themselves. Look what I have built. Remember that? When we were in Genesis in the beginning? This tower that they built, they were so proud of, that they were going to be like the living God. And God did what? He confused their languages, and they had all these... So we see this beautifully as a sort of, not a reversal of that, but not a reversal of the curse of Babel, but it's this idea of now we see these tongues, and they're being used vertically for praise. For praise. Hold your finger here again, but we're going to turn back to Acts chapter 2. Let's look at verse 5. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. You know, in the, the multitudes here from all these nations, they gather in Jerusalem. Why? Because of the Feast of Pentecost. What was 50 days before the Feast of Pentecost? Passover, right? That was when the angry mob gathered, remember, and demanded the execution of Jesus Christ. Now, from our sources, what we can determine, or what I was able to determine, is that there was somewhere between 80,000 to 100,000 citizens living in Jerusalem at that time. That would have been the population, 80 to 100,000. But after the diaspora, remember that? That was specifically when the Assyrian invasion happened, right? And those of the kingdom of Israel in the 18th, or the 8th century, it helps if I get the centuries, right? The 8th century, right around 722 B.C., they went in, they were brought into this other land, they intermarried, right? We understand, that's where we get the Samaritans, the whole intermarriage there. But that was the diaspora. What did they go out? Then all of a sudden you have these other nations that have gone out that way. Well, they were still Jews, and they would come back for the holy feast, and they especially the great feast, Passover. And since they were there at Passover, they would stay 50 days, right, for the Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost. 
So we believe between that and then also you look at the kingdom of Judah in, in uh, 586, somewhere around 596, if you look at the first carrying out, uh, Daniel and some of those that were first carried out, there's multiples through the Babylonian invasion there of Nebuchadnezzar. But the kingdom of Judah in the 6th century, we also see a diaspora where they were carried out and we see all over Babylon this intermarrying, right? The, these folks that were spreading out like that. So they're all coming back. So we believe, at least what I was able to determine from the numbers and from some of the scholars that tried, they said up to 3 million people. I mean, can you imagine a city that normally would have 100,000, somewhere between 80, maybe even 60 to 100,000? 3 million people would land for that feast and they would be there for 50 days. Hence why, remember the upper room when they were looking for the room where they would go and they would have that Passover feast? It would all be booked in that area. It would all be booked. So, I mean, you think about these accounts after they returned home from the feast days. They went home talking about Jesus Christ, this Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ from the Gospels. That's how the Gospels began to spread. And then also, many of them, as we're going to read here, watched in their own native tongue the praise and glory to God the Father that they spoke in their own native tongue as they watched these 120 disciples in their own native tongue begin praising God. This phenomenon, they'd never seen anything miraculous like this before. They go back to their areas. I mean, it's a diaspora. They go back to where they were and they begin to tell everybody this and the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to spread. Not just the 3,000 that we see here or we're going to read about in Acts chapter 2, but far beyond that as people went back that's how the gospel began to spread to the Gentile nations. And if you think about it, when they gather in this room, you and I are direct descendants of that. Every single person that's a born-again believer here is a direct descendant of this. You might be saying, Pastor, how do you figure that? Because the evidence and the power of the Spirit of God moving and the power and spirit of the gospel of God moving upon people led other people to tell other people the good news, which led to you and I hearing the good news. Unless you're Jewish here, as a born-again Christian, a Gentile. We were all Gentiles. And it all came from this diaspora that eventually will spread out as we continue to read the early church. It's amazing. Verse 6, And with this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were confused, they were perplexed of mind, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So, obviously, this crowd gathers, a huge crowd, right? At least 3,000 of them get saved. So if there's 3,000 saved, what is there, maybe six, 7,000, 8,000? We're not going to make the assumption every one of them got saved. I'd love that assumption as a pastor, right? I'd love everyone to get saved. But the reality is, I'm not sure if everyone did. I'm just not sure, and the scripture doesn't declare it that way one way or the other. So I'm going to assume, and, and this is a rightful assumption here, right? I don't want, this isn't thus saith the Lord, but there would have been many gathered. So six, maybe thousand, seven thousand, they're all gathering, and they run because they hear either the multitude of the sound of the rushing or because they hear the praise of God in their own native tongue. Can you imagine? Again, they're all here. They're all speaking their own language. They're talking to their friends and family members. They're all gathered in unity in one aspect because they're there to praise the living God, you know, Jehovah that way. But at the same time, all of a sudden, if you hear, if you, many of you have traveled to other countries. You know, you go over to Italy, you go to Spain, wherever you're, you know, Europe, wherever you're from, you know, your family, and you go over there and you travel, maybe in the military, right? And you hear someone speak with a native tongue. What's your initial response? Don't you do a double take because you understand it, you hear it. 
You know, it, it's like that with Italian for me, or sometimes even Spanish. If I hear it because it's, I can understand, I, I initially, it's like, are you talking to me? It, it just becomes that way. What's really cool is when you start dreaming in other language. That's really cool when you start to actually have a dream and you're speaking another language, and that's pretty awesome. And that's a lot of times those that are native-born speakers of one language and they learn another language, sometimes they will dream in their native language, but sometimes they'll have a dream with the, another language that way, and it's, it's kind of cool. So clearly, I mean, we see that either the rushing wind drew them or the speaking in other tongues drew them, but either way, the crowd came and they began to hear Christians speaking in a foreign language, and they were confused, man. They couldn't process it mentally at first. They were, they're trying to work through this, and they're like, what is going on? Because it's just like you. If you ever have something happen where you hear somebody again in a native tongue that you're used to, that you grew up with, and you're in a different country, and all of a sudden somebody speaks your language, you're, it, it takes a second. The, the, the switch flips. I don't know if, if I, it does for me. I don't know. That's the only way I can explain it. It's like I hear it. I know it. I even understand it. But it takes me a second to actually come back and go, oh, you're speaking a different language. Because it's so natural. It just seems like I, under, you know what I mean? Like, or, or something that you don't expect. Maybe something that, that's happening. You know, you walk in the house your home, and somebody, you know, your child, you know, maybe your nephew, grandkid, one of your, you know, children, comes up, and out of the mouth of a babe, they say such just beautiful wisdom from the scripture. Maybe something the Lord had put on their heart. How was your day? Normally, you get the good. No, really, how was your day? Fine. Would you like to elaborate on that a little bit? Can I get a couple adjectives in here? You know, how was your day? But then all of a sudden you come home and you're sitting at dinner and you're at the dinner table and you're about to have supper. You've blessed the meal. How was your day? And you turn and one of your children or, or a relative or a friend all of a sudden opens up and starts quoting scripture and starts telling you all how the Lord did this, that, and you're sitting there. You're processing it, but mentally for a moment, you're perplexed because that's not the normal kid. You know, at least in my house, I'm going, what? Praise the Lord. I just stop. I start praising God because I know I'm like, Lord, that's you. Thank you, Jesus. You begin to see that. You know, I imagine that for them, that's what it was that kind of an experience. You know, they couldn't process it mentally. In verse 7, it says, Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not these all who speak Galileans? You know, what, 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 are they, what is he bringing out here? Well, people from Galilee were known for unfortunately, being known as uncultured or poor speakers. You know, I think this is more of a reason to be impressed with, with the work or the phenomenon we're seeing. I mean, they begin to speak eloquently in other languages. I have a hard enough time in the English language, let alone in Italian or Spanish or some other language, you know what I mean? They're speaking eloquently in another language. And, you know, the Galileans had dif difficulty pronouncing gutturals, Right? Or they would often drop um, syllables. They, they call it swallowing syllables when you drop a syllable that way. They would drop syllables when they were speaking. And so what would happen is the people of Jerusalem, the, you know, the citizens, the 80 or 100,000, when they saw somebody that was a Galilean and they came in, they would look down upon them as poor or common or beneath them. That's why often you hear, you know, the disciples or even Jesus or others say, you know, can anything good come from where? Nazareth, remember that? Because they too were known for that guttural, that idea of dropping the syllables, that idea of the not pronouncing and not being, you know, grammatically good that way. So it's interesting as they look upon this, they're looking at these men that they go, I just, 
I never see, you know, they don't expect it. To me, it reminds me of half of the Calvary Chapel pastors. Yeah, look it out there. I mean, most of us, if not almost all of us, have never gone to seminary. You know, and then sometimes people come up, well, how do you teach the Bible like that? Well, I don't know, it's the Holy Spirit. I mean, half of us were drugged out, alcohol, um, man, I don't know. I mean, I, you guys know my testimony. I mean, between alcoholism and everything else, and, you know, I was never good in school. Lisa loves to tell everybody, you know, he was a D student. He barely passed. He, I don't know why she loves to tell that testimony so much. But, but uh, you know, I was not a good student in school. I was not, you know, what you would say book smart or someone that was, you know, I, maybe a little more street smart, you might say. But I was not book smart. And, you know, all of a sudden I got saved and I picked up the Bible. And, man, I could start reading. Next thing you know, I'm looking at other language, Hebrew and Greek. I mean, I was just like, whoa, and I started understanding it. It was like, you know, I think of my pastor, Pastor Scott, and his dad, Pastor Bill. I mean, at one point, you can read it in the Harvest book. At one point, I mean, his wife, when he first got saved, Rosemary, she thought he was, you know, crazy. She was going to commit him to mental. Uh, she thought he was insane because it was all about Jesus. You know, you're a Jesus freak. What's going on with you? Till she got saved and all of a sudden went there to get him and said, no, get him out. Get him out of there. He's normal. You guys are all crazy. And then next thing you know, she goes in and she finds him. What's Pastor Bill doing there? He's turning around teaching a sermon to all the doctors in the insane asylum. They're all getting saved. Seriously, they're all getting saved. They turn around, next thing you know, they start coming to church. The work of the Spirit of God. It's amazing. There's nothing like it. And so we see this. And so, you know, you look at these people, these, you know, Galileans. Oh, they're, they're common folk. Where are they? And all of a sudden, man, boom, it's being laid out. They're like, whoa. They just didn't experience that or anything like that before. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we're born? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, to think of the Iraq area, Judea, uh, Cappadocia, you know, Turkey, right? Pontus and Asia Minor, the other areas of Turkey there. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Who that, who's that talking about? That means Gentiles as well, right? We see Gentiles. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. That's what they were speaking. That's what it was all about. The tongue wasn't, hey, I'm going to exhort you, brother. Hey, I'm going to rebuke you, brother. And they're using a other tongue to do it. No, we don't ever see that in Scripture. It's always vertical. And we always see an interpretation of that. Because we're going to read that not only is it a, it's a, it's a sign for unbelievers because they see the manifestation, but if there's no interpreter, people walk in and go, you're crazy. You're crazy. What are you doing, right? If you walk in, if somebody started speaking in a tongue today and you didn't understand, you know, Corinthians or you'd never read this before and you're a young believer and it's the first time you're hearing this, you're going, they're crazy, man. They're loco. I ain't going back there, right? Some of us, if we're being real honest, the first time we heard someone speak in tongue, it unnerved us, right? It unnerved you. You were like, what was that? And then all of a sudden, somebody had the gift of interpretations, and you begin to hear them doing what? Praising God. And when you can understand it, all of a sudden, are you unnerved anymore? No, you start to go, you start to rejoice. You start praising God in, in whatever tongue you're speaking, whether it's English or whatever, you just start praising the Lord along with them in unity. Because when other people are praising God and you're there, what do you want to start doing? Praising the Lord. That's what you do. Look at verse 12, it says, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? You know, 
That's a good question. I don't fault them for that. Normally, I fault the, you know, the apostles or the 120, and I'm like, guys, got to figure this out. They're all sitting there. I'd be doing the same thing. What does this mean? Can you imagine the 120? They're probably going, what does this mean? I mean, they're sitting there hearing this going on, and remember, this is not something they control or do. When I mean control is they have control over it. They could close their mouth, obviously, but this is not something that they lathered up or worked up. The Holy Spirit, as they were praising God naturally, as they were already saying, thank you, Lord, praise your holy name, as they were saying, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, as they were praising, all of a sudden what happened is they're doing that, an other tongue came out. Their prayer language came out. And it was very natural. It was, it was not something that would draw attention to yourself or anything like that. They're just praising. They're just praising God. It's very natural that way. The wonderful works of God, as we read. So they asked, what ever could this mean? You know, what do we make of this phenomenon of speaking in tongues? Speaking, you know, as tongue is, again, has been a focal point of confusion in the church. Think about it over the years. People today, I think, maybe even here this morning, are asking that same question as they were on that day of Pentecost. You know, I will say this. Everyone agrees that God, at least one time or another, gave the church the gift of tongues. There's not anybody that will disagree. You can meet any Christian you talk to. They will say, yep, I, I agree with that. Where does the confusion center upon? What is the purpose in the gift of tongues for today? Or is it in existence for today, right? Some think the gift of tongues was given primarily as a sign on believers. You know how I asked you to hold your finger in Corinthians? Turn back to Corinthians. Let's look at verse chapter 14. Let's look at verse 21. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes. But in understanding, be mature. He's calling them the maturity now. Be spiritually mature, spiritual maturation. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to the people. And yet, for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, the tongues are for, now this is Paul, again, correcting or exhorting the church in Corinth, for a sign. Not to those who believe, because if you believe and there's an interpretation, you already know what they're praising. But it was a sign for who? The unbelievers. But prophecy is not for unbelievers for those who believe. So he begins to say that, that, that initially the outworkings of the sign of you know, tongues is for, is for the unbeliever. And some believe that that's just for them, that that's what all it was for, was just for the unbeliever because they read that one verse without context. They read it individually. And they think that it means that it was a, a means of, of miraculously communicating the gospel in a diverse language because there's all these languages represented. As a matter of fact, when we read it, it said every nation under the world. So all the languages of the world at that time, right? And therefore, they say, well, we have people that can speak all different languages today. Therefore, there's no longer a need. This is where it comes from, this idea of where sensationism comes from. There's no longer a need for this sign. So they regard the, the gift of tongues no longer present in the church today. But we've already covered this. Is the gift of tongues vertical or horizontal? Vertical. It begins with the right interpretation of Scripture. When we keep scripture in context, much of our confusion, much of the good hermeneutics that we get out of scripture, when in context, the confusion goes away, the perplexity goes away. We're no longer confused. Why? Because we're given the interpretation. Now, others suggest, and I would say we, you know, we sort of fall uh, in this context here. I say Calvary Chapel as a whole, but others suggest the gift of tongues, right? While sign of unbelievers is stated, as we just read in 1 Corinthians 14, 21 there, but is also primarily a gift of communication between believers and God. Well, why do we say that? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 
Chapter 14, verse 2 again. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men. It's right there in the word of God. It's not horizontal. It's vertical. You don't speak to men, but to who? God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Right? Look at verse 13 through 15. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. In other words, even the person praying often doesn't understand what they're praying. It's just it's, it's vertical prayer. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Right? Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will you, who occupants the, the place, in other words, in the church, of the uninformed, say amen? What's amen mean? So be it. Right? So he's saying here, how would you, if somebody speaks in a tongue and there's no interpretation, how is anybody going to go amen or hallelujah? Because we don't understand it unless you've been given the gift of interpretation of the tongue. So the primary use of this is praise, and it's vertical. That's what, that's what the Bible teaches. Now here's my question, and it's to all of you this morning. It's a very, very simple question. And to all those in internet land, when would we need, or when would the gift that was given to us to praise God ever need to cease? When would that gift no longer be valuable? We always welcome the gift to praise our Lord Jesus Christ, to praise our God in heaven. There's never a time when it would cease. Just like there's never a time that we will ever cease as born-again believers worshiping the living God. Amen? Now that we can say amen because we understand it. So as we look here, and we continue on, we can see that they spoke again, these wonderful you know, works of God. But the big problem comes in, again, with the sensationists, and I don't mean to label them that way, but those that believe that the gifts are no longer valid, is when they begin to mistake and understand Acts 2 as horizontal communication. When you, when you miss the context, or you miss who these people are speaking to, the wonderful works of God, praise then you misunderstand the whole thing and you think maybe they're spreading the gospel. No, Peter's going to go and spend probably 15 minutes or maybe five minutes and he's going to give a wonderful sermon from verses 14 all the way through verse 40 that they're all going to understand because he's going to speak in what? Greek, because they all understood Greek. There's no problem with a common language. The language that they were speaking in the other tongues was praise so that people could see or hear them praise in the native tongue. You see how beautiful that is? I love that. When we understand the word of God in context, context is king, good hermeneutics, there's no confusion. There's no perplexity of mind that way. It's very simple. And I like that. So the crowd, the, the, the crowd gathered, obviously, they overheard what the disciples were praying. That's what they did. They heard either the noise of the rushing wind or they come here and they hear these 120 men and women and children and what are they doing? Praising God. And they're like, we can hear them praising God. And oh, by the way, it's in a native tongue and it's not in Greek or it's not in some, you know, some other language. I like that. So I think believing that the disciples communicated diverse crowds in tongues is simply wrong. 
Therefore, I think, as I mentioned already, the simple conclusion of the gift of tongues, which is used for praising God, never ceases. And why would it? We should always praise God. But I should also be careful to say that there's nowhere it's recorded in Scripture that receiving the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit, requires you to speak in a tongue. There's nowhere we see that in Scripture. So if there's somebody sitting here this morning and you don't have the gifts of of tongues that way, you don't need to go, well, I'm not baptized in the Holy Spirit. No, that's not true at all. Well, Pastor, that's, that's an interesting declaration. We don't really care what you think. Where is that in Scripture? Good question. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's look at verse 20. Paul talks about the unity and diversity of the body of Christ. But now indeed there are many members yet one body. And he's going to go through and talk about the giftings and how through the body of Christ many gifts are given. Not everyone is giving the same gift. If we were all given just one gift, then how would we serve our Lord in all the different ways? Because we don't possess those resources ourselves. We've already covered that. How would we do it? But he gifts each one individually for his purpose, for serving him, for praising him. It's not about what we want. We can pray. We can ask. Lord, give me the gift of tongues. I want to praise you in that natural prayer language. Praise the Lord. That's a beautiful thing. But if he doesn't give you that gift, it doesn't mean somehow you haven't arrived. or It, doesn't, it just means he hasn't given you that. But maybe he's given you the gift of prophecy. But he tells us what's the most important gift. And I tell you, if this one, if you don't have this gift, that's a problem. What's the most important gift that we read? Pastor Henry Ganey's coming in. He's going to teach on the gifts. We're going to go through every gift of the Bible. We're going to go through it. We're going to examine it. But what is the most? He says, if you don't have this gift, you have nothing. What is it? Say it. Love. It's the gift of love. When you receive the Holy Spirit, not only do you receive boldness, but the gift that everybody receives is the gift of love one to another, to lay down your life, to serve your brother and sister wherever they are whatever they're going through. That's beautiful. That's unity. So as we conclude here, we'll look at verse 13. Keep your finger here in Corinthians. We're not done yet. Others mocking said they are full of new wine. Now, remember, why, why would that come out? That, if we read that verse alone, it might seem odd. But if we go back to verse 12, what were they asking? Whatever could this mean? What's the reason for this, right? That was the question. Whatever could this mean? Now, we never see this in the church anymore today. And I say, notice I said not the world. We expect to see it in the world. But we never see this in the church anymore, right? Those people that come through the doors that believe in Jesus Christ and yet doubt his promises. Don't you think that grieves the Holy Spirit? What do these, what do these people do? They're, some of these are mockers. Look what they say again. They're mockers. Some said mocking, or others mocking said they are full of new wine. They've witnessed the miracle. They've seen the sign to even the unbelievers. And yet they still doubt. Now, there's no logical or rational explanation for that. You'd sit there and go, why? I don't understand that. It's not logical. How can you come in the same doors every week, week after week, Sit here under the word of God, hear his truth, and decide what you're going to pick and choose to believe. For many of us, we don't understand that, right? I mean, most of us, we can't understand that. But I'm telling you, there are people that do that. There are people that come in and they, 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 they hear, but it doesn't penetrate the heart. Jesus talked about the four soils. Some of that's 
not just salvinic, but it's sanctification. Some people come in and, and the heart's not right or ready. You know, every time before I get up here and preach, I ask the Lord, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the right heart that I handle your word. Actually, Lord, get me out of the way. You send it forth. I don't want to touch your glory. I want nothing to do with it. And that's not just some pretense of trying to be humble or any of that junk. No, I'll, I'll be honest with you. That's fear. That's good old-fashioned fear. That's what I have when it comes to the handling of order. Fear. Not many things I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of touching the glory of God. So, as we close with this verse here, he says he used it to what? Some use it to excuse or dismiss the work of God. They're full of new wine. They tried to explain it away. Some people today try to explain away the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Some people today try to, try to explain away the unity or, you know. We, we just had the wedding yesterday. There were some people that came to the wedding there that, that weren't saved. There were many that were. But I think one of the things uh, Allison shared with me was really compelling. You know, the caterers, they, the caterers, they, they, they cater. That's what they do, right? Like, they're, that's what you do. You cater. You're a caterer. And they came, and they were serving the food, and they're doing all this beautiful. It was beautiful, very beautiful. Just, I mean, what a godly wedding. Beautifully done unto the Lord because he was the center of that wedding. And you watch that whole thing transpire. The caterers came up after, and, and I guess they said to Allison, you know, they said, you know, we just, as many weddings as we've done, we, we've never seen something like that where the prominence, and I don't want to get this wrong, but the prominence was put upon God. It was beautiful. All the weddings we do, it becomes more about this or more about that. This was beautiful. This was special and unique. <sighs> but there'll be those that will always be mockers. They, they don't understand. And it's not that we should grow cold hearts towards them. God's never called us to do that. What is the greatest gift of all again? Love, compassion, patience, long-suffering. But there are those that even in the church, they're full of new wine. They try to explain it away. You know, the gift of tongues is a prayer language. It's a prayer given by God whereby believers communicate with God beyond the limits of knowledge and understanding. Do you think about that for a minute? Beyond the limits of knowledge and understanding. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians 4, 4, or 14, 14. Beyond the knowledge of understanding. You know, the gift of tongues has a very important place in the devotional life of a believer but it does have a smaller place in the corporate life of a church. And we read that already in 1 Corinthians 14 when we looked at verse 18 and 19. Especially in public meetings, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, 23, therefore if the whole church comes together in one place and they all speak with tongues and there comes in one who are informed or unbelievers, will they not say, you're out of your mind? <laughs> right? I love how Paul doesn't mince words. You know, and, and honestly, the first times we saw that when we were unbelievers or we didn't understand, weren't we thinking, you're out of your mind. What are you doing? Right? So corporately, God tells us in the church that it plays a smaller place in that way, that it plays a huge, 
place devotionally between our prayer time with the Lord, our talking, our speaking. That's why on Sunday nights, it's a beautiful place. When we have, you know, on Sunday nights for corporate prayer, we come afterglow, you know. I'm waiting, I'm, and, and notice that I say waiting. We're not lathering it up, man. I'm waiting for the time in which God begins to just, the praise begins to go, and it's gonna come out of somebody that least probably expects it, but their, their hearts, you know, yearning to the Lord, they're already praising God, and it's gonna come out as a, an unknown tongue or another tongue in their beautiful prayer language. There'll be someone there to interpret it, and they're gonna just praise God, and they're just gonna be, have such a peace, and there's gonna be people that are gonna sit around and go, they're gonna even open their eyes for a moment. What was that? And you're gonna think back to this teaching and you're gonna remember and you're gonna find peace. You're not gonna find it weird. You're gonna go, all right. Welcome, Holy Spirit. Praise you, Jesus. I like that. You see, we read the word of God. The Holy Spirit does not interrupt himself either because if we're reading through the word, notice how no one here calls out in another tongue or in the gift. Why? Whose word is this? Who inspired this word? The Holy Spirit. He doesn't interrupt himself that way, does he? No. Everything with decency and order. After all, communication is with who again? God, not man. It's not the horizontal. That's the purpose of the gift of tongues. Now, the repetition, I'll say this because somebody, some people might hear this, the repetition of simple phrases or unintelligible, if I say it that way, and perhaps nonsensical <laughs> to human bystanders, those listening, doesn't mean someone's speaking in gibberish. That's why we're told that there's one that will interpret. Praise to God is simple and it can be repetitive. It's dynamic. Remember, what did 1 Corinthians 14, 2 tell us? It, it bypasses what? Our understanding. It bypasses our understanding. Who's it for? It's for God and who understands it? God. It's praise. So all in all, we should not fear this gift but welcome the gift which God desires to give us a part of his promise. And I'll, uh, I'll really conclude this time with this. That the gift of tongues is a beautiful gift used to praise and declare the wonderful works of God. So my question here is, whom shall we fear? Why would we ever fear the gift, the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Don't we all want to be filled and and just experience his very best? Don't we want the resources he's desired to give us?